0: Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. This is California. I am Hugh Hewitt on this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, parts 4, 5, and 6 of the history of Western civilization with our guide through the great thinkers, Dr. Larry Arne. Dr. Arne is the president of Hillsdale College. He has his Ph.D. in modern history and philosophy from Claremont Graduate School. He was a scholar at Oxford for a number of years, working close with Sir Martin Gilbert, the world's greatest living historian. And he is helping us walk through, as this beginning of the new year, all the great minds of Western civilization that we can cram into this two-day special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. So, Dr. Arne, welcome back. It's good to have you with us again. Nice to be here. How are you? I'm good. I want to tell everyone about Hillsdale at the beginning of this and about Imprimis. So let's start with Hillsdale. Describe for those who are just tuning in for the first time in this epic broadcast uh, what Hillsdale is and its mission.
1: Hillsdale is a liberal arts college located in southern Michigan. It's old. It was founded before the Civil War, and its distinction early was that it was one of the forces, one of the few important forces that helped to found the Republican Party and bring Abraham Lincoln to power. It had more of its sons go and fight for the Union Army in the Civil War than any college except West Point, where they all had to go. Nearly all of our boys went, and we were small and young then. The distinction today is uh, we try to stick as close as we can to that original idea of the liberal arts college that really is refined and, in my opinion, perfected by the American Revolution. If you're going to have a society where people govern themselves, you need liberally educated people, people who thought about the highest things and understand them, in order to equip them for rule, for leadership, for citizenship. And we stick very close to that. We uh, refuse an amazing thing to do, every penny that the federal government offers us. And because of that, we don't have to put up with any of the commands that they give, which are many and numerous and often vile. And so it's a singular kind of place.
0: How many students are enrolled there? We have uh, 1,150
1: students. Uh, It's a small liberal arts college. We believe that you can't do the job on a big scale. Uh, If you come to Hillsdale, you'll spend your first year and a half Studying the same thing that every student studies here. Uh, two, it begins with uh, two readers, one called Western Heritage and one called American Heritage, where we go through most of the works that we're talking about here on this program. And uh, you study the great books, you study the tradition of rhetoric, you study the sciences, and uh, you'll do that in classes that have 12 or 14 or 15 people in them.
0: Wow. So if you, if and who are not, your faculty? I'm sorry? Who are your faculty?
1: Well, we have uh, 110 people. We have a ratio of 11 to 1 between students and faculty. That's very good. And these people are are, uh, splendid teachers and scholars who as a body are closely united around the original mission of the college. Uh, I'll name a couple. Probably our most popular teacher is the dean of the social sciences division. His name is Tom Connor and he teaches a course on the First and Second World Wars every year that they're hanging from the rafters, and uh, it's hard hard to get into the course. And in the summer, he often takes kids to go visit the battlefields. Uh, We have a a professor in Christian Studies who teaches uh, C.S. Lewis. His name is Michael Bauman. It's the devil to get into that course. I don't know if I could get into that course, although I want to go sometime. Uh, we just hired a young man named Andrew Cunio in English, who also wrote his doctoral thesis on C.S. Lewis. Over in the sciences, we have some biologists and chemists and physicists that are just fabulous, and the kids flock to them and have dinner at their house and hang out all the time.
0: Are you uh, are you uh, shuttling along there at, at too many applications and not enough seats?
1: Well, we're we we do we're very selective, and we're becoming increasingly more so. Uh, We're looking for students who have uh, good characters and good minds. And uh, a Hillsdale education is is a specific kind of thing.
0: Now, Hillsdale also puts out, and I'm going to either mispronounce it twice or pronounce it correctly on the first go, imprimis, am I pronouncing that correctly?
1: Everybody who works for Hillsdale College says imprimis, which means in the first place. Uh, but if you don't say in Primus, you say in Primus, that's fine too.
0: Well, in Primus, then, although I do not work for Hillsdale College, is a monthly letter or a newsletter. What would you call in Primus? I've been getting it for years.
1: It's a speech digest. What we we have uh, we have three national conferences around about the country every year, and we get famous people to come, and we have uh, four. Series of seminars each year on the campus, plus we have convocations and commencements and because of that, because of those various events, some of the most famous people in the world come and talk for hellsdale College, so we've had Ronald Reagan in Primus and Justice Thomas recently, and Margaret Thatcher recently and it's uh a lot of people like that. It, it, you know, Tony Snow is in the is in the current issue.
0: I think Mark Halperin did an imprimus at the end of last year, which was really quite breathtaking. Am I correct in remembering Mark, that?
1: Mark spoke at a, We have an annual dinner in honor of Winston Churchill every year in Washington D.C. around the time of Churchill's birthday, which is November 30th. This year, the speaker was Jesse Helms. He'll be in the next imprimus. And last year, the speaker was Mark Halperin. And Mark Halperin, who, as you know, is a novelist, an award-winning novelist. Uh, he also writes powerful articles for the press, especially for the Wall Street Journal. And he's a soldier. And he's a genius, and he's a good friend of mine. And oh, I did a very know. powerful writer.
0: Yeah. And so anyone who is listening can order Imprimis, can't they? And they get it for free. It's free. A million and a half copies you send out. That's quite a postage bill.
1: A million, two hundred thousand a month. Oh, well, we'll and, get it up there then. And we at Hillsdale, not only do we refuse the federal taxpayer dollar... But it's also true that we are, we, we are long for the day when the post office can be privatized and there can be real competition, so our postage bill will
0: go down. <laughs> primus can be ordered, can be, you can be added to their list by dialing 1-800-437-2268. That's 1-800-437-2268. And I want to emphasize, there's absolutely no cost, no obligation. They just like to disseminate ideas. Am I correct, Dr. Arn?
1: And we never give our mailing list to anybody else. So you won't get a pile of mail because you sign up for Imprimus.
0: You'll just get good ideas. Well, let's turn to good ideas. When last we left off, we were talking about uh, Augustine, the great saint of uh, the late decline of the Roman Empire. And we're going to flash forward a little bit to his successor, as doctor of theology in the church, Aquinas. Tell us a little bit about Thomas.
1: Well, Thomas Aquinas is an Italian. Um, he went to seminary. He met the great thinker uh, theologian Albert Magnus. Um, he was a big, heavyset, taciturn man in speech and so they gave him in seminary the appellation dumb ox Uh, G.K. Chesterton has written a fabulous essay about Thomas Aquinas called Aquinas the dumb ox Um, Aquinas was a prolific author he wrote uh, huge books uh, the most famous being the Summa Theologica Uh, my favorite being the Summa Contra Gentiles uh, that, that means the, the the summation of the case against the heretics or the nonbelievers. It, it, the word gentiles looks like Gentiles, but there's also a book he wrote. That there's a, that that book is and the Summa Theologica. have both been excerpted from in some in some uh, small volumes. My favorite of those being treatise on the law, which is taken mostly from the I think entirely from the Summa Theologica, and it's about the different kinds of law, including the natural law. And then the last thing I'd mention is, Thomas wrote, he began at the end of his life, a summation of the Summa Theologica. The Summa Theologica is a difficult work because it's written in the form of the disputed question.
0: Boy, is that an understatement.
1: It's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. Now, the, the, the Summa Gentiles, which I like better, partly for this reason, is, is written in a treatise form. It's just he makes arguments about things. He he makes arguments about everything, <laughs> but but uh, uh, he tried to summarize the Summa uh, Theologica in a book called The Light of Faith, which is itself a fairly weighty book, but it's just one volume, and it is simpler, and it's it's arranged according to the order of faith, hope, and charity, the three Christian virtues. And that's a wonderful book to read. And I
0: why do we care, with a minute to our break, why do we care about Aquinas anymore, this, this difficult bookmaker?
1: The, um, the classical world contained a lot of wisdom and not Jesus Christ. And so after Jesus Christ, something had to be done about that wisdom. It had to come to be understood anew in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thomas Aquinas, especially in regard to the philosopher Aristotle, is the most important man in that enterprise. More important, I believe, than Augustine, and different from Augustine. And if you want to examine the question of what the virtue, the status of the virtues, the status of man is, according to human reason, after the revelation of Jesus, everyone should read Thomas Aquinas.
0: On that note, we take our first break on this part four of the special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. We are walking through the great thinkers of Western civilization with Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College. When we return, we return to the Italian Machiavelli. Don't go anywhere. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on the special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Thank you for listening. Originally taped for airing on December 31st and January 1st of the new year, 2001-2002, we are joined by Dr. Larry Arne, president of Hillsdale College, as we walk through sort of the cliff notes, even a bare-bones cliff notes of that, of the great thinkers of Western civilization so that you can uh, accomplish your New Year's resolution early this year by at least learning a little bit more than you knew last year. Uh, Machiavelli, I sat through weeks and weeks of lectures on Machiavelli by a fellow named Harvey Mansfield, a professor of political theory at Harvard. And he always spoke of Machiavelli reverentially, wrote a great deal about him as well, as well as of the break, and there I was banging my little sophomore head against the table, what is this break, what is this break? So why is Machiavelli referred to in the same breath as the break, Dr. Arn?
1: Well, you studied with the best man on that subject that there is. Um, He's a friend of mine, as of yours, and a great man. What it means is that Machiavelli decided to change, attempt to change the focus of philosophy. He criticized the ancients for their attempt to construct imaginary republics, for their attempt to understand how men ought to be. What he wanted to do instead was dwell upon how they are. He wished to give up the question of the good and concentrate more on the question of the useful. Uh, This break, this change, has had profound implications for thought and for the world we live in, all every respect of our lives, um, the first and most famous thing about Machiavelli is that there is an adjective that, made out of his name that refers to a kind of politics, Machiavellian. And I'll give you an example of why that phrase rec- 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 uh, represents justly something that is in Machiavelli. In Book Seven, uh, Chapter Seven of Machiavelli's most famous work, it's short, it's easy to read, it's very powerful. Uh, It's called The Prince. Uh, Machiavelli tells a story that is the classic story of Machiavellianism. There, Duke Valentino has conquered Romagna, and there are a a host of petty tyrants there, and he has to submit them to his rule. And so he sends a man named Ramiro Dorco there, a man of exceptional cruelty who works a terror upon the population and reduces it to subservience to Valentino. But then, after the cruelties have all been worked and the subservience is established, Valentino then goes, puts Ramiro Dorcort to death by, by uh, quartering him, and puts his severed body on display in the public square, winning thereby the affection of the people that he had previously, upon whom he had previously worked to terror. Now, there's a lot of things like that in. Machiavelli. Yeah, it's He's a, a very amusing reading, especially to the young man. Yeah, <laughs> yes. But, but you, you have to see that what's going on in classical philosophy is a, an attempt to find a standard of right to which we could conform that would be eternal and outside us. Classical philosophy looks up. Machiavelli looks at us He's interested in making us better, but he, he derives the idea of what constitutes better by a study of the conditions around us now, understanding both the evil and the potential for good in men. This question of the good is called into question, both by things that Machiavelli says, like what I just told you, but also by his whole approach. And that's what constitutes the break. Let us look at this world. Let us give up on worlds that do not exist.
0: Well, then I, I have to ask, we'll, we will sometime today get to a fellow by the name of Madison who wrote, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Does that make Madison a Machiavelli?
1: Certainly not. Uh, Ma- Madison's quote, the burden of that quote, which is one of the most beautiful quotes in the Federalist Papers, if you know, what is government but the profoundest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither internal nor external controls on the government would be needed. Madison's quote is a quote oriented by the the distinction between the man and the angel, just as the Declaration of Independence is oriented by the distinction between God and man. And so it is not only the, the demands and the pressures of this world that give rise to his thinking. It's also with an eye to the to the higher world that he defines his politics. And
0: Machiavelli had no, no eye cast up at all?
1: Well, no, that wouldn't be true to say. And Harvey Manfield would shudder, I, I fear, at my entire performance in this thing. Uh, I want to repeat here my humility that it is my position, learned from my teacher, Harry Jaffa, that no man can really learn well more than three great books and even that's very difficult so I protest that most of what I'm talking about I don't really know but uh, I I say that for such as Harvey Mansfield in particular but no, Machiavelli Machiavelli is a contemporary of Martin Luther and Machiavelli sees some problems that have developed in part because of the birth of Jesus and, and the spread of Christianity all of a sudden the idea grows that because there is one God for every man, then the authority to rule, to govern, comes from God. And there were abuses in church governance, which spread beyond merely spiritual matters, that were very, very difficult to correct. Um, It's taken a long time to correct them. In my opinion, the United States of America and its doctrines are the correction of them.
0: I have to go back to uh, part one of our conversation when you were talking about your teacher, Harry Jaffa. He said that he had read three great books, and one was The Ethics, and the other was The Bible, and the third he left unnamed. Could that third have been The Prince?
1: Mm. No, I think think the question is more... I I think Plato's Republic is included.
0: Oh, you're right. It wasn't... And
1: and, uh, then the Bible, or Shakespeare, or... um, uh, I guess it's really a contest between those two. Of course, I speculated on this for years. Yes,
0: you, but it's not the Prince. He,
1: he said, "No, no, not for him. It wouldn't be. It could be for Harvey. I don't know. I'd have to ask Harvey that. He would give me a cryptic answer, just like Harry Jaffa would."
0: We have a minute. What about the Republic, Machiavelli's other great work?
1: Well, it's a different kind of thing than Plato's Republic. The distinction between it and you know all of Machiavelli's works, the Prince and the Discourses included, the Discourses on Livy. Machiavelli's idea about how to study politics is not to construct a regime of perfection and then measure the ones we have by it. It is emphatically to skew that idea. And so these books seem very different than than, uh, uh, all of his books seem very different than reading uh, Plato, and especially Plato, and any of the classics.
0: When we come back, we turn to that great wrecker of the church and builder of the new church, Martin Luther, my guest, Dr. Larry Arnn. He is the president of Hillsdale College. If you wish to get a little bit of Hillsdale every month, then you call 1-800-437-2268. Ask for Imprimus. That is their monthly newsletter, a digest of great thinking and great speechifying. 1-800-437-2268. We return with the German, moving from the Italian to the German, so don't go anywhere on this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, Voice of Reason in the West, joined by Dr. Larry Arnn, Pref- president of Hillsdale College in Michigan. Dr. Arnn, Martin Luther, big subject for five minutes. Tee it up.
1: Well, Luther is born in 1483 uh, in in Germany. He becomes a monk. He goes to Rome. He notices that Rome is a very worldly place. And by worldly, I mean sort of the way Washington DC is today at its worst uh, involved in power
0: and full wealth. of whisperings
1: yeah that's right it's it's a it's a he is appalled by what he sees the famous thing is the selling of indulgences that is to say there's an argument that's very important in the Reformation about the nature of church authority that's one of of a few arguments, let me see if I can name them, that's going on there. There's the nature of church authority. There's the relationship between faith and works as a means of salvation. Um, That calls into question the standing of the virtues and the vices. Um, the, The doctrines at the time... Luther came, are really derived from the passage in Matthew, which says, Who who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God, and, and Jesus replies to him, roughly I don't have it in front of me, but uh, upon the art Peter, Peter is Petra, is the Greek word for stone, and upon this rock I will build my church. And what you bind on earth, I will bind in heaven, and what you loose on earth, I will loose in heaven. And the special place of the apostles in carrying on Jesus' teaching, and this particular thing, gives rise to the idea that it is bishops—that is to say, the descendants of the apostles who have had their hands laid upon them—who carry, with, in a special way, the message of Jesus down through the ages, and that the successors of Peter, who became the bishop of Rome, are the key, uh, are key, are the key representatives of God on earth. That's the Catholic Roman Catholic doctrine. Now, what that means, though, is that you have power. And one of the things that grew up that was a terrible corruption was this idea that if you pay money to a priest, maybe to the church, and maybe to the priest personally, your sins will be forgiven. In other words, do him a favor. And that corruption, by the way, is skewed by the Reformed Catholic Church that we have today. I'm myself understand the Pope, the, the current Pope, John Paul II, to be a very great man. And these arguments are very serious arguments. Well, Luther saw all that, and he rebelled against it. And that led him, in a long series of works, I think his translated works into English take up 56 volumes, um, that led him to develop a new way of understanding church authority and the relationship between faith and works. These two things are related, by the way, because if the Church has authority and if works, that is to say, things that you do are important to your salvation, that gives the Church some authority to control your
0: behavior. He was also, though, not just a revolutionary, but he was really quite a reactionary when it came to government on this planet over people like the Peasant Revolt in his uh, regions of Germany.
1: That's right. and. What would be fair to say? You know, he, he, he Luther was a, a conservative. You know, I, I, that's a hard. That's a. It's not a very good word, conservative. I'm one, but I, you know, I, I can say what I mean when I say that I'm a patriot. What I mean when I'm a conservative is that I want to keep certain doctrines alive, and I can name what they are. Luther was of a conservative temper. Um, he he did not wish to upset the German society. He was not, nor was Calvin, his, his blood brother and near contemporary. N- neither of them would, would, would characterize themselves as political thinkers, as having an idea about how to govern. They thought, in general, taking passages from the Bible, that just about anybody in power, if he was in power, was put there by God. And that and that uh, even the worst tyrant could not extinguish faith or attack faith. And so his politics are, are they're not worked out the way some Christian thinkers' politics have been. My, 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 my own opinion is, is that that is a failing of a kind and I'll get to that when we get to the American Revolution.
0: And when we come back, we're going to get to the most surprising choice, in my view, on Dr. Arne's list of the people we must stop and at least pay a little attention to, sort of a vista stop on the highway of Western civilization. Stay tuned, and we'll give you the surprise choice when we return on this, the special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. We are in... Part four of the six-part tour of Western Civilization, our guide, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College in southern Michigan. And uh, we have now come to that name on your list, Dr. Arn, which most surprised me when we first talked about this project, and you you tried to demur and tried to get out of it, and I wouldn't let you escape. Uh, You did not mention Francis Bacon, and I don't know anything about Francis Bacon. Why did you pick him? What do we need to know?
1: Uh, I picked him because of one word, uh, science. Um, Bacon... Is a development on Machiavelli that leads to the understanding of science in, in the sense of modern science, technology. Uh, Bacon's chief works are The New Atlantis and The New Organum, Novum Organum. Um, he also wrote a utopian work. Um, Bacon agrees with Machiavelli that we have to concentrate on the here and the now. But he adds something, and that is, what do people want in the here and the now? Uh, who do they admire? What do they love? Are they grateful for their heroes? Or are they grateful for the people who help them? The expression, the relief of man's estate, is uh, is born in bacon. And bacon foresees a time in which there will be enormous energy poured into that uh, and that we will have science bended to the job not of discovering the greatest and deepest and most fundamental truth but of being serviceable
0: hmm. um, he was born in 1561 he dies in 1626 so this makes him an elizabethan
1: that's right okay. that's right and okay. the renaissance is going on and it's, it's a you know the, 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 there, there's a ferment underway you know because what in, in if you look at uh, if you go back and you look at the doctrines of, of uh, in Plato's Republic for example what they're doing is something that issues in the end in a series of questions. And the account of the good life that is implicit, it's not explicit, but implicit in Plato's works is a good life is a, is a, is a life of argument about the highest things. Where that argument ends, you don't get a doctrinaire statement. You get more of that in Aristotle, but not in Plato. Well, this is the opposite idea. This is. Serviceability. This is usefulness, um, and and it is very powerful in Bacon. And Bacon makes, of course, a very very powerful point.
0: So, but fact, I, I'm not getting this. You think Bacon is important because he stresses that we ought to put science in the harness and make it make the lights down at night.
1: He's one of the he's one of the way stations along the way of modern philosophy, and and remember, Machiavelli turns. From elevation to usefulness in his politics. But this but here is a way here is the introduction of a tool of usefulness that has become of course one of the defining things in our lives. Why? You ask yourself. Do we care about the Taliban? A hundred years ago we would not have known their names. But it is because of science that they can strike us and we can strike them back. The world is remade by a spirit, an energy, a method, an enterprise, that is really articulated first and clearly in the works of Bacon.
0: And it is it is a very spare, just the facts, ma'am, it, uh, it, the launch of the scientific method.
1: Yeah, you could say that, but remember, that, that, that implies something, remember. That implies... What is the highest, you know, because philosophy, that means the love of wisdom. And wisdom, Aristotle says, is knowledge of the things that do not change. And So each of these people that we're talking about are giving an account of the highest things. They're giving an agra- a great account of those things. And, and so implicit in this turn to the usefulness of modern science is this idea that that is indeed the highest thing. Usefulness. Usefulness to what? Usefulness to our love of honor, our sense of justice? No. Usefulness to our comfort, our preservation, our prosperity. Remember what uh, Spock in Star Trek always says. What is greeting and his farewell? Live long and prosper. So length and wealth are the things about life. But of course they're not. It's in it you know why why are we all going around wearing caps and t- shirts that say f d n y people right. those, those firemen who went up in that building did not live long, and they are not prosperous today, except in honor and service to right. There is a narrowing of the perspective that goes on here but and now bacon is
0: is part of the court which which feasted on honor. Uh, Elizabeth addressed to her sailors on the on the eve of the Armada and she was it was all about honor. So is he a part from this whole Renaissance England thing?
1: I think so. And a part in it too. Um you know, they were there there ai I I'm not I don't want anybody to get the sense that I'm in rebellion against the modern world because I'm not. Um I I just think that there are some strains in it that are very evil and and dangerous and ultimately could mean the destruction of us all. And I think that it's an important thing. I also am not talking now in order to condemn Francis Bacon. I'm not. If you wish to understand the spirit that is behind modern technology, this is an excellent place to go and look.
0: Then I want to switch over then to someone uh, who we talk about regularly on this program uh, with a professor from the United States Naval Academy, David Allen White, who's really quite a genius at talking about Shakespeare, uh, and so we know on this program why Shakespeare is here. But let's get launched on him. He's a contemporary of Bacon's, but he's kind of the opposite.
1: Well, Shakespeare is, uh, it, there's a speech in in, uh, in uh, the symposium, played one of Plato's dialogues, where they, they say that there will be a poet who will have the genius both of comedy and of tragedy in him, and that this poet will be the greatest of the poets. Well, Shakespeare wrote three kinds of plays: comedy and tragedy, and a kind he invented, uh, history plays. And these plays, and the sonnets too, but especially the plays, are, I mean, if you if you ask the learned world or the ordinary world, who is the greatest of the writers? There would be a consensus that it's Shakespeare.
0: When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about William Shakespeare as we conclude part four of this special edition with Dr. Larry Arne as our guide of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, the voice of reason in the West, joined by Dr. Larry Arne, president of Hillsdale College. If you want to get a little bit of Hillsdale every month, you call 1-800-437-2268 and they will send you in primus. Dr. Arne, we're talking about Shakespeare as we conclude part four. Uh, Do you make the students at Hillsdale, are they obliged to take a course in Shakespeare?
1: Uh, everybody has to read Shakespeare in our freshman core course. On uh, It's a two-semester course uh, taught by the English department. And so everybody reads a lot of Shakespeare.
0: And what then, do they begin with?
1: You know, I don't really know the answer to that. Um,
0: what would you have them begin with?
1: Well, I, my, I, I'll tell you what my favorites are. Uh, I love the history plays. I'm a historian. Um, I love The Tempest. Uh, I love Macbeth. Abraham Lincoln loved Macbeth. Um, I, I'll mention a thing. You know, Winston Churchill knew Macbeth off by heart, and several of them as well. I was taking a course on Macbeth with Harry Jaffa. And, uh, we now that did, would
0: be a course.
1: We did Macbeth and King Lear. He's written about King Lear. By the way, uh, King Lear, uh, let me get it right, The Merchant of Venice... And uh, the Tempest are the three plays in which someone is described as a philosopher. That's an interesting study for somebody to hmm. undertake sometime. The I remember we're reading Macbeth's description of his assassination of the king Duncan, and he begin and and we're we're listening to somebody reading the play. It's a, it's a production of the play and listening to them. Harry Jeffers is a big believer in that, and I I commend that to anybody to. Buy a recording of an excellent production of Shakespeare. Not the pictures, just the words. And listen. It's fabulous. And follow along in the book. Um, He describes the angels above crying out to him to stop, and the ghouls and devils below screaming for blood. And of course, you know, later comes this wonderful. Uh, encapsulation of the whole meaning of justice in this even handed justice commends the poison chalice to our own lips. Well, when we got to the part where the ghouls and they were all screaming from below, Harry Jaffa picked up the, the needle on the the phonograph he was using. And he just all he said was, I remember it like it's yesterday, he said, Does this man believe that there is a moral order or not? And they put it back down and on we went. Hmm. And, you know, of course, that is the human condition, because we all believe in a moral order and cannot escape the belief of it. it. And we all have our failings.
0: When we come back in Part 5 of this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, we're going to talk, uh, at least begin, with an English philosopher who thought quite clearly there was a moral order. Uh, A little bit afraid of it, I think, when we come back to Thomas Hobbes. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to a special edition of this program with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and me, your host, Hugh Hewitt, on this, the New Year's edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show.